Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Really, podcasting is all about learning how to synchronize your claps. It's really a lot like cheerleading in that respect and in the respect that we're constantly promoting each other's work, like patreon.com slash agab, patreon.com slash the left page, and patreon.com slash horror vanguard, uh, three websites you should be very familiar with by this point. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello. It is. Uh, that was a slick plug. We just dropped it right in there at the beginning. Right no, out the gate. Right out the gate. Uh, if this is your first episode listening, you don't even know who we are. You, and you already know how to give us money. This is how it should be. It's the important stuff. It's the important stuff. <laughs> uh, it is time for a mini episode where we try and cover some of the some of the big news, some of the big new releases in the horror community. And uh, what what are we talking about, Ash? Today we're talking about a brand new Guillermo del Toro anthology, uh, aptly titled Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. It's it's um, I, I was I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this that actually, for some filmmakers, right, it's kind of difficult to be a fan of theirs, right? Mm-hmm. Be- because you never really know what you're gonna get, right? Yeah. You, like, who who's gonna show up? <laughs> like, which, <laughs> which which version are we gonna get? So like, sometimes it's quite difficult, uh, you know. But like. If you're a, if you're a Guillermo del Toro fan, like your life is very easy, right? That aspect of your life <laughs> is very straightforward. Oh, there's a new GDT project. I wonder if it's going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be good. <laughs> like it's not complicated. <laughs> it's one. It's one of those. It's like it's like the sunrise or something. It's like I could just count on this to be at the very least really good. Yeah, right. Uh, th- so a new anthology show over on Netflix. Um, like before we there are a couple of episodes that we are going to talk about in a little bit more detail. But before um, we get into that, like, what did you think about the show just generally? I So I think horror anthologies are some of the most fun, I, I think, in the horror genre. I think there's something also fairly unique to horror. They're the kind of anthology format outside of, I guess... In indie cinema and the festival circuits, uh, the the anthology format doesn't pop up too often for other genres, and especially in the way it pops up for horror, right? There are uh, like this, like this is a star-studded, like some of the entries in the Cabinet of Curiosities are like high art as far as horror goes. That I think contrasts really well to a, a bunch of other shit, <laughs> the less good entries in horror anthologies, and I think that this one. It's giving us both, you know, it's like a smorgasbord. There are some things in here I like a lot, some things where I'm like, wow, that's amazing, and other things where I'm like, I, I don't think I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, I think the anthology format really suits horror. In a, in a way, like, the obvious point of reference here is The Twilight Zone. Each each episode is yeah. in, introduced by Del Toro. It, it self-consciously calls attention to its own fictionality. Um, but mm-hmm. in a way, in a way, this is like, tapping into a longer cultural tradition of like gothic theater of like freak shows and circuses like of this idea of of entering this 
participatory hermeneutics, this participatory anthropology of culture, right? Where you go, I know it's not real, but I've I've you've crossed you've crossed the boundary of the magic circle, right? Mm-hmm. And for for a moment it can become real. Absolutely. And and the name I, I think is also interesting as it's interesting to explore the name of this program as well in kind of this formalist context, right? The cabinet of curiosities, you know, the, the proverbial Wunderkammer, right? Like uh, they were traveling exhibits, right? The size of a room that you could walk into full of n- notable objects, artifacts, oddities, interesting things. You might see like some exotic animal bones, a human skull, a bunch of faked stuff. But it was there. It was there to shock and amaze and tantalize, and as as the name very much suggests, like inspire curiosity and wonder. And I think, in in a horrific and gothic sense, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity succeeds in this. Well, I I couldn't agree more. And what I love is like consider filmmaking as a kind of cabinet. What like what was the cabinet for? Mm-hmm. The cabinet was, and Del Toro says this in the introduction of the very first episode, and it sort of like made me sit up slightly straighter, which is like, he says that it's about keeping history kind of alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what What else is cinema for, right? It's a, it is a formal construction within which we present an aspect of history that is kept alive in front of you. And I think I think even even though there are some entries in the Cabinet of Curiosity that I didn't particularly enjoy or I found to have problems in their kind of political readings, let's say, I think all of them are well situated in their particular histories. There's not a lot in the way of kind of like a dehistoricized nostalgic smaltz that that, that could have been in this. Um and so I think that, that that that's an incredibly important framework and to recognize that like like horror is its own historiography, right? This is a way of knowing and a way of remembering and a way of telling our present stories. Yes, absolutely. And I admire the attempt, but I think some of the episodes are more successful than others. The, the, there is one of the final kind of formalist point that I want to raise, which is like... Mm-hmm. Um, Something I, I I honestly very much respect about Guillermo del Toro is the willingness to promote horror making as a fundamentally collaborative activity, right? Yes. So like this is this is not the Guillermo del Toro show. It has his name on it, but you have uh, Catherine Hardwick, you have Guillermo Navarro, you have uh, Vincenzo Natale, you have. Um, David Pryor, who is maybe the MVP director of this entire show, season. Right. Uh, and you have Panos Cosmatis and Jennifer Kent. And yep. what, I, what I love is that Del Toro has clearly gone, who's made horror movies that I really liked and can I get them to do this? <laughs> mm-hmm. This is this is this is really like like this is this isn't a, a tour de force of, of like contemporary horror talent showing up in this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into the ones that we did like, should we maybe kind of talk about the ones which were not as successful in our opinion? Yeah, I, I think um, I'll, I'll start off with two that are perhaps a little idiosyncratic for me. I, I didn't really um, click with either of the two um, Lovecraftian ones, Pikmin's Model or Dreams in the Witch House. Um, uh I want I wanted to, to to like them or find them interesting, but I think 
I for for both of them I got really bogged down in the because these are movie length episodes, right? Like each one of these episodes is roughly an hour long. Um, and I got bogged down in them in terms of their conversation with what is now about 100 years of Howard Phillips Lovecraft's impact on horror and fantasy writing um, in less as artistic pieces on their own. And I think that's that's one of the problems of working with Lovecraftiana and and, you know, the the very the tentacular cosmic weird. Right. Yeah. Is that you you walk into that space and then all of a sudden you have to kind of like wrestle this this wizened 100 year old necromancer who's like still talking about Hiberian bone structures you know like you you have this really complicated bag to deal with when you enter these spaces and at least for me I I sunk too much into that quicksand while watching these two yeah I I I kind of agree with you I also wasn't super enamored with lot 36 uh Guillermo Navarro's um uh, episode which opens the season I thought it was a little obvious and kind of deeply straight it was it was useful you know yeah. like it's kind of made for us really but I, I'm like it felt <laughs> it felt a little too obvious and a little too simple and a lot of its politics were not all that well developed I mean when you have a kind of like literal mustache twirling evil German show up I'm like Okay, so we're not trying to do anything too serious here. <laughs> However accurate that is, it's still a little cartoonish. Um, I, I, com- I completely agree when it comes to Lot 36. Um, I, I think that the, the, the conversation about race and racism, especially as that relates to not just something that happens aesthetically and affectively in our current moment, but is something that is 100% bound to these kind of mysterious uh, material historic traits. Um, I, I felt that that stuff was really important and some of the execution there was spot on, but I think they're, they're, they're like our, our race in our racist uh, main character, right? Our, our antagonist protagonist. Um, there's a couple moments where they're talking about, Oh, he's a, he's a military veteran that that's clearly got some injuries and some trauma and he's got all these reasons for being racist and it, it, it leaves that stuff. All of those things are like affective codes for like the bad racist types. Yeah. And it, it doesn't really grapple with the, it kind of material causal flows of their like racism as part of the boss's toolkit for creating instability in the working class. And like the thing that I that I really didn't like and I saw coming is like so he has a he has a, a confrontation with a woman who is uh speaks with a very heavy uh, Spanish accent mm-hmm. and he's very rude and like the solution is like vengeance, right? Yeah. He needs to get out. She leaves him and locks him locks him away and locks him away to die. And it's like, so our solution, like the we, what we want is that we want to punish. That's what we want. Like that's mm-hmm. that's how we resolve. It's not through uh, overcoming systems of racism that produce this kind of bigotry, right? Yes, yes. It is in a very classical sense, deeply neoliberal, very individualized. Um, on the other hand, the autopsy which is um, directed by David Pryor, who also did The Empty Man, mm-hmm. uh, is Ping. so good. Is a proper, properly like vicious, grim slice of horror. It is It is just 
so one thing, and I, th- I think I can say this about every entry in in the Cabinet of Curiosities, and but especially the autopsy episode, is that it is just so disgusting. It is just just like the, the that entire episode is just like uh, a if you if you want disgusting effects work, you know, like if you just if you just want to like feel gross it is so oh so good and then like the conversations on like like the the fascist alien squid monsters uh without flaw like like prior stuck the landing so hard on that yeah shout out to uh, f murray abraham as well uh Mm -hmm. just mm, chef's kiss yeah and just just it's Almost refreshing in a way to see a piece of kind of mainstream horror like this be so brutal and precise and cutting. Like, ooh, ooh, 10. I'm holding up my big 10 at the Spooky Olympics. Uh, absolutely. Um, but there, there were also another two episodes which are very, very good in very different ways. And that's the final two episodes of the season. Uh, one directed by Jennifer Kent, the other... Uh, written and directed by uh, Panos Cosmatis, uh, the director of oh, Ma- yeah. of Mandy. Let us start with the viewing. Let's from- go. Panos Cosmatos is back. Uh, it's it's so good, folks. It's, it's so, it's like, it's just stylistically on point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is... I, I love anyone who who thinks that films are really good when they have tons of color in because they're right because <laughs> they're right yes. and more people should do it. Um, what what did you think about the viewing? I this isn't just one of the best entries in the Cabinet of Curiosities. It is one of the best short horror films of twenty twenty two. Like the 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 viewing. If this does not get a physical release, I I am going to get a bootleg physical release of this. Like this is a fantastic piece of cinema. He's he's he's. What I love is that he's such a he's such a weird little guy. <laughs> uh, what yes. if what if what if there was a magic space rock, but it it was found in the seventies by a reclusive billionaire weirdo who was super into like custom made drugs and had a physician that used to be the bodyguard to Colonel Gaddafi. <laughs> like right. what, what, what an amazing idea. <laughs> just, 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 just without, without flaw. Right. I, I, oh, I'm, I'm just so, so happy with like, like what? What if? What if you got together like a group of four to five of your biggest loser friends, and then you did research chemicals until an alien rock took over the Earth? Like, oh my god! Um, do you want? I, I as soon as I saw it, as I I was like, just this massive smile broke over broke over me as soon as I saw the goo because Ash, <laughs> Ash, I want you to talk to me about goo. So so like. At the climax of this movie, right, the reclusive billionaire is is a collector, right? Guillermo del Toro sets this episode up by, I, I think, what for me was one of the most compelling introductions because he is just, like, doing this, like, almost Zizekian exploration of desire. And, and he's talking about, like, oh, well, what if, you know, like, like the collector that has no material constraints, right? So, someone who is not only wealthy beyond imagination, 
but they've ingrained themselves into a system of powers such that there is nothing on this earth that they could not have if they desired to have it. What, what would then happen if they collected something that in return collected them? And so he, he gets together a, a group, a group of people. We have, um, a, a legendary music industry producer who has lost the magic, if you will, right? Has kind of like fallen out of love with his craft because it's so commercial. Uh, a budding scientist who who is experiencing the most wonderful academic imposter syndrome that I in no way related to. <laughs> um, a, a, a failing writer who's like jaded and just wants to cash checks. Uh, a very Guyan Smith character shows up in this. Yep, yeah, yeah. Um, and then a uh, like like a fake TV psychic. <laughs> I think just just um, so good. But they they all they all go to view this 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 rock right this otherworldly object and and he's got all these people there because he wants their insight into this thing to help to figure out what it is, um, and then the the musician, uh, starts smoking weed in front of the magic space rock and the magic space rock inhales a fat bong rip, and then it sprouts satanic goo antlers. And then uh, psychically attacks everyone in the room, causing most of them to melt or explode. <laughs> and then it and then it melts down into goo after having sex with a former colleague and associate of General Gaddafi, and then takes over the body of a like desiccated Peter Thiel. I love love this <laughs> so much. Like okay, so Panos Cosmatis knows knows how to do one thing really well and just does it over and over again, and I respect that enormously. Um, <laughs> it's 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 so good. It's so good. It's it's this wonderful kind of moment of cosmic horror when the this space meteorite breaks open, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's so. Because uh, the the music producer is played by Eric Andre, it's yes. the, the he's moment so good. where he's like just nervously keeps lighting up joints is so mm-hmm. funny. Um, and yes, there is this reconstitutive goo, this demonic space goo that can uh, it basically melt your face off. Uh, which is it's the literalization of the infinite, right? It's the literalization mm-hmm. of of the the cosmic. And of course, it has to be non. It's the close. Goo is the closest thing that you can get to being non-corporeal in the sense of having an identifiable body, mostly because goo has no uh, boundary to it. Yeah. So, so goo is kind of infinite. The slime is is eternal, uh, and human subjectivity literally melts into it. Oh, a- absolutely right. And like all of the protagonists of this, they all have have like these 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 classically psychoanalytic psychoanalytic misplaced desires right like like our our academic is such a good example of this right she she very clearly desires success and recognition in her field but what she what she really expresses want for is a, is a need for an internal sense of confidence and stability right like it's the classic academic imposter syndrome someone doing amazing beautiful work but nevertheless doesn't feel like they really are or deserve the the success and like every other one of these characters has these kind of misplaced desires right like our psychic our psychic desires like broad validity and acceptance for his for his psychic powers but what he what he winds up getting is is kind of like 
something more than a Faustian inversion of that. He gets a literalization of what that desire would actually mean. He gets proof that you can psychically connect with beings from beyond. It just melts his brain, literally. <laughs> and I think it's, it's such a great exploration of like, okay, well, our desires are never just our desires, right? There's always something one step beyond them. And, and even when we realize that, there's, there's going to be things beyond that, right? Our, our desires, and that's because our desires aren't uh, like endogenous to our minds or, or our bodies or our beings, right? They're, they're a networked property, right? They exist in between individuals inside the gears of society. Appropriately enough, like our gooey space demon, our desires are themselves a type of goo. Uh, you are completely right. And I think this brings up the the other kind of like a d desire is mediated chemically, right? It is. Yes. It is, it is, yes. Which means we should bring up. Uh, so so nineteen seventies Bruce Wayne invites all of these <laughs> all of these all of these people to his like weird weird brutalist mansion. Who hasn't been there, right? Who, who hasn't been there and. Uh, presents them all firstly with their all of their favorite drinks then a 50 year old japanese whiskey uh then some weed and then some chemically created some lab created space cocaine um <laughs> basically basically i i want to know what you think about drugs in the context of this film <laughs> So I, I think there's there's so much going on here that's really worth talking about because I think a lot of our conversations on drugs and drug use more broadly, especially in horror cinema, um, focus on moralistic narratives. I think about the new Hellraiser, which I absolutely loathe. It, mm. it is it is such a betrayal and failing of what the potential of a Hellraiser film could be in an era where like non-binary, genderqueer, and trans individuals are like so forefronted in political discourse um nevertheless but another one of its many failings is that it has a moralistic approach to to drug use and drug addiction right it's it's oh you've got you've got a substance abuse problem therefore you're going to be responsible for the death of a bunch of your family and friends because you didn't have more willpower is is the the uh, the onsetting incident to the film and i think that contrasts really brutally with uh panos cosmatos's uh, the viewing and it's because the the, the drug use in this isn't clear-cut good or bad right there are there are definitely elements that we could talk about from like a quote-unquote problematic perspective like pressuring people to do things they're not comfortable with or eric andre's character which i really loved someone who has a, a troubled relationship right with substances right that's something that they're they're trying to navigate in terms of themselves and on the other hand like we also don't like you know, it's 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 one hundred percent clear that it's not the fault of these people enjoying like General Gaddafi's research chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> like for the events that happen. Like the reason why these events happen is because a billionaire wanted to flex and and you uh, know has like yeah, this living space demon. Revealed by the fact that when he's offered one of his own joints, he goes, uh, I don't touch that hippie shit. Yeah. Um and it's also, the billionaire is played by Peter Weller. <laughs> oh my, yeah, what is, what is, what is psychic going on? casting here? This is so good. But um, you're completely right. The, the relationship of this to, to, to what we might call recreational pharmaceuticals is one that is expressly focused on consciousness. 
and it has mm-hmm. it has a very 70s attitude towards drugs right which is about the manipulation of human consciousness it's why so much of the uh, conversation before we get to you know the head melting phase is around music <laughs> is around music right yes there's also some of the best diegetic music in this that i've ever heard which is like this oh, oh my god the yeah. weird like 70s funk soundtrack that's playing on like the the hi-fi system it's so good so so our, our billionaire lionel lannister um had this building designed for him and then like because no music would have suited that building as it was he had a really esoteric italian composer put together this soundtrack for him and he keeps he's 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 a podcaster he keeps hitting his little buttons to get the laugh track drops in right when he needs them and then switching up the soundtracks and like he constantly adjusting and mediating his mood through his music selections and then like Oh, it's like like when he's gone. Um, one of like like his enforcer is there, like just playing with the system and lounging. It's such like this weird meditation on uh, diegetic music and cinema. It's so cool. But like, it, what I what I really love is the way this is. This has a this ha- this this has a kind of weird sense. It's a, it's a it's set in a kind of hauntological nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's there's this great moment where Lionel asks uh, Eric Andre's character what the best song he's ever heard is, mm-hmm. and he talks about like kicking around the world, and he runs into this like weird group of like f- uh, of funk psych psychedelic musicians who are just playing a song that's never been recorded, and it's just a song they all knew, and he's he has this amazing line which I've been thinking about ever since, which is it made me nostalgic for things which never happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I was just like, you know, staggered in Mark Fisher. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but this, this brings up a broader point about the 1970s, right? And about the brutalist architecture and the music and the drugs. And a lot of people think that uh, Panos Cosmatis is this kind of like obsessional nostalgia and constantly restaging retro aesthetics and like mm-hmm. retro psychedelic color palettes. They're wrong. They're completely wrong. What he's doing is restaging a cultural moment when the future and an expansion of consciousness was seen as possible. Yep. Architecturally possible with like brutalism and modernism and, and uh, psychedelically possible with you know, perfections in neuro enhancements and pharmaceuticals and uh, artistically possible with uh, music and literature and, and even even psychics. So it's mm-hmm. like, uh, w- weirdly, Panos Cosmatis is horror's version of an acid communist. Abs- absolutely. This is absolutely correct. And I think, I think like, to, to focalize the psychedelic for a second... Um, so, and, and again, to contrast this with like the, the the kind of like now tropic and stuck in a groove horror uh, expo- explorations of psychedelia in general, a lot of explorations of the psychedelic and horror focus on the bad trip, and they oversimplify the process of a bad trip by just making like oh like you're gonna see some spooky scary stuff and horrible things are gonna happen to you, um, and then when it's over it's over, but like th- this is this is a bad trip movie. If we if we wanted to use that kind of uh, generic taxa on this, but instead of it simply being our, our characters do a bunch of weird billionaire drugs, like Batman's finest cocaine, 
and then like you know see a goo monster and all die like our, our, our characters process the the deepest levels of their desires and then two of our characters um the the academic and eric andre's vexed musician wind up escaping and so does the goo monster right like like the 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 potential caused by the point of rupture that is a bad trip by this kind of negative possession doesn't end it, it it forces open new doors that should never have been closed to begin with it's nevertheless an important conversation even if it is a deeply troubling and uncomfortable one i could not agree more and i think it's such an interesting contrast that the next episode of the show that they decided to put after Panos Cosmatis basically doing uh, space horror psychedelia was to let Jennifer Kent do uh, a, a, a something almost completely the opposite in kind of its tonal structure. Oh, absolutely! It's it's such a good it's such a good come down from the high of a Panos Cosmatis movie. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you want to do you want to? It's like do you want to take a load of really good drugs and listen to some seventies rock, and and then get and then get really really sad. (laughs) It's 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 like emerging from ketamine therapy. You know, like you're 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 coming back out of this like like indecipherable void of the self, and then like you reemerge into a a comfortable memory of a gothic haunting. You know, like you're you're back. You're back in the world, and you've much more traceable components that are nevertheless now somehow so much more compelling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we, should we talk? What, what did you think about the Jennifer Kent uh, episode? <laughs> I'm sorry. This has just been such a fun episode to talk about. I just, I just compared like a gothic haunting to like a ketamine therapy session. <laughs> um, it's accurate. But like, so one thing that I think is really interesting about uh the murmuring is how it slots in to what would otherwise be a trite and well-worn gothic paranormal romance yes right like like this is this is and i think this contrasts so bizarrely with the lovecraftian stories that for me just kind of got caught in the gears of the lovecraftian sandbox but this one takes an even older even more established even more kind of well-worn trope and like works it so subtly that it it just becomes alive again. This this is this is so close to reading 1700s gothic literature for the first time. It is it's it's very it's very it's very slow. It's very it's very beautiful actually. Uh, yes. And it is it is like uh, one thing I've said before about Del Toro is Del Toro likes ghosts because ghosts really are about grief. And mm-hmm. Like sometimes horror horror is not necessarily always about fear. Horror is about the the gothic certainly is about melancholy. Yes. Um and I don't and I mean that in the psychoanalytic sense, right? This you know, the different distinction that, that that Freud draws between mourning and melancholy, mourning being a completely kind of uh, expected behavior after the after mm-hmm. a loss, melancholy being like a loss which is uh something that is inescapable yeah no i i i completely agree like if the panos cosmatos movie was like a a a sledgehammer full of refined fungal chemicals coming directly for your deepest dreams this this film is 
uh, distantly holding the hands of a lover on a cold bench, wondering what happens next and hoping for the best, even though it might not. Yes. Like, it's such such a beautiful contrast in moods. There's also a lot of... Um, again, we have another academic in this. What oh you, yeah. What do you, what do you think about that? So I, I think, I think this movie has a really interesting exploration of a lot of issues in academia, right? This is, this is another Jennifer Kent movie. It's got a lot of thematic tones coming through from the Babadook. We have, we have like a, a, a mother dealing with like a very difficult parental relationship in our case with a child she lost when it was a year old. Um, and like that's intimated to us to have happened fairly recently in the past. So it's, it's a very recent trauma that they've gone through. Um, and so we, we've got this like layered space that our protagonist is in where she, you know, like just, just went through a major life and medical event, right? Having a child lost that child tragically when they were still an infant um, is, is a, a, oppressed individual in the academic system which means they're constantly going to be overlooked by by people who intersect with oppressor classes above them right like like that's that's how this flows systemically right the 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 great sifter of oppression is going to drag her lower than it will male counterparts um and you know like there there she is stuck in between all this stuff like unable to process that still stuck working like unable to take real time off, which is like, ask anyone you know who, who's 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 an academic or ex ed or whatever. Like if like when's the last time they actually took a day to themselves? And like if they tell you recently, there's a good chance they're lying. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that um, she's an ornithologist. What? Yeah. What do you make of that? Well, I think there's this there's this. Uh, there's this kind of like interest in naturalism, like mm-hmm. everyone, everyone, the the way that grief is talked about is like, well, it's only natural. Yeah. Uh, losses, but loss, loss is this kind of like death particularly is this weird paradox, right? It is natural. It's mm-hmm. underscored by our, our kind of finitude, but also psychologically it's completely unnatural. It's, it's a, it's a breaking of something that we think shouldn't that shouldn't happen. There's a kind of like aporia around which we find ourselves constantly circling. Our, our ornithologists are off to this uh, secluded island in the UK to study some dunlins, right? Some tiny little birds. Our couple are Nancy and Edgar. Edgar keeps talking about the birds in context of mating season, migratory habits, what they do seasonally. There, 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 he has like a cleanly divided cyclical approach to what the birds do with their time and with their lives. He's very, yeah, very, very invested in like natural yes. behavior. Um, whereas Na- Nancy is very, very caught in this moment of rupture, you know, like, and I think it contrasts so nicely with their academic study because there's, you know, like, like the birds, the birds of this island are, are imbricated in this, this haunting and this paranormal event. They're they're part of they're part of this. They're part of Nancy Nancy's healing process and her finally coming to terms with the loss of her child. Yeah. But they're also part part of a history, right? They they intersect with human culture. And I think by by contrasting like the, this is kind of asking us the question of like, okay, well, like, do birds grieve? 
we we know that corvids can carry multi-generational grudges <laughs> and like would it only make sense that the birds could feel some kind of pain like i, I think that's is, it becomes very provocative for like okay well why 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 are we so focused on uh like mating rituals as as important sites of knowing and not grief yes because like this is the thing that Nancy says that she likes about birds is their freedom. Mm-hmm. Like, and what does it mean to be free? It means to be free of attachment, right? It means to be free of loss. Yeah. Um, and then the possibility is that actually the, the kind of, actually the redemptive possibility is that actually, but maybe they do grieve. Maybe that, maybe that's their freedom is something that, even we can come close to. Oh, completely, completely. And I, I love how this movie walks us through this, this couple who are on the outs processing a major traumatic event, you know? Um, so, so uh, eventually things reach a boiling point between Nancy and Edgar and, and Edgar lets, uh, lets us know where he's at emotionally. Right. And he is apparently become exhausted from trying to reach Nancy over this last year, over the death of her child. And he's done processing and he's moving forward on healing. And Nancy has been the one who has just completely stonewalled herself, right? She, she's taken an isolationist approach to this. And I think that it, it becomes like so interesting to connect them into like these discourses of naturalism, how these ornithologists are studying the birds and and how uh, so we have this wonderful line: the groundskeeper of the building, right, uh, comes to bring them some supplies partway through. And I think this is really useful for this conversation. Um, but Nancy Nancy approaches him and, he's, and asks, "Hey, what happened in this building?" And the groundskeeper doesn't want to talk about it. It's re- he's reluctant. It's old news. No one no one in the community talks about this anymore. Um, and Nancy Nancy pressures him into revealing this information, and he lets Nancy know that. Um, the, the the former owner of the building, Claudette, drowned her son in a tub before taking her own life. Um, so so a tragic yet similar um, event to Nancy's own recent history. And I think that, oh my God, like there's there's just so much there's so much to say about this. Like the these these sites of knowing, these ways of extracting information. His his response to her is that there are no ghosts in this building. People are only seeing something they're looking for. They're seeing what they want to see in these ghosts, you know, like, and it's just, there's so much, um, like, like I think about ghost hunters going to cemeteries all the time in the context of this, they're not going to see the paranormal. They're going to capture some expected event, like, like a mysterious light or, or a difficult to explain shadow and frame and then re and then present that back to us as evidence of the supernatural so that they can then continue to sell whatever program they have. Yeah, exactly. And I think this raises this raises a kind of really interesting question, which is like, in the murmuring, what are ghosts? Um, so this I, th- I think is really interesting because there's there's so many ways to look at what ghosts are in cinema, but I think the murmuring is kind of presenting us with a, a, an option, right? Like this is a very like this is like a gothic materialism thing, but like like these these are very much the ghosts of our history. Right. And in, in, in a layered sense, because it's the ghosts of Nancy's recent history. Right. Like there's this there's this event that she's denying the death of her daughter, Ava. Right. Something she's trying to live as if did not happen. And then we have the the ghosts of the manor house, the, the ghosts of the boy who was tragically drowned in childhood 
and the ghost of the mother who was driven to that act who then took her own life. And we have all of these points where is is not the you know like in order for nancy to find her own redemption to find her path forward she needs to redeem these ghosts of the past it's just not enough if she were to find it on her own and walk away like healing happens on on historic levels or it just doesn't happen i think the thing that i think the thing that is kind of so reassuring is um this idea that ghosts actually are an indication that you aren't alone. Mm-hmm. Um, ghosts are this idea that you that our our individual pain, our individual suffering, which can be so all-consuming, um, does have historical precedent, right? The 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 kind of the very darkest night of the soul that you might have gone through um, is something that is shared collectively through this occulted historical memory and this and this doesn't take away from the individuality and specificity of our own pain and struggle but it's actually a deeply comforting thing right to recognize our shared condition that is trans historical right at the at the our very lowest to be haunted is in some way to be comforted oh i i could not agree with this more i i think this is just a beautiful way to look at the murmuring too you you get these you get these like eh, sometimes silly but often tiring comments of like oh well you you never see a happy ghost coming back to to tell people happy stuff you know like ghosts are always tragic and dark and haunting you know like there are, there are no ghosts in the Chuck E Cheese ball pit all the ghosts are located you know somewhere dark and someplace painful but where is the work to be done you yeah know? where where are we at our most human like, oh, absolutely! It's yeah. it's in it's in the context of being that which is left behind after death, right? The the mm-hmm. the, the the injustice and pain of uh, of of death of death of a family member is not that they're gone; it's that you have to stay here without them, right? You become mm-hmm. you become yep. a you become a kind of ghost in a world which no longer has any kind of meaning or or, or resonance to it, so. No wonder you'd, there'd be a haunting, right? Because the ghosts mm-hmm. are the ones who would get it, the ones who understand. Absolutely. And I think in a lot of ways, dying is not something that happens to an individual. It's always something that happens to groups. Yeah. Because when when a loved one or a friend or a family member passes on, part of you goes with them. Part of you dies. Part of, part of you cannot come back from the great beyond when before you yourself even die. And I think that makes us naturally connected to, to sites of haunting, right? Like to, to, you know, we say this all the time, but to be alive is to die. And there's a natural bonding we have with that. And, and to hook that into discourses of marriage and love and death, like it's kind of grim, but like just as with moments of great exaltation, moments of great agony are also when we're at our most alive, we're kind of overflowing with these energies and juices of life and, and we're spewing them forth in ways that are sometimes troubling and can't be contained and sometimes cause pain. And I think that in, in a lot of senses, you know, a moment ago we asked what are ghosts and ghosts can also be an excess of life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the kind of the, the, the real horror is this idea of enforcing, enforcing the, the loneliness of grief where, 
you know, uh, Edgar goes, oh, I didn't, nobody's, nobody else sees anything. I've not seen anything. I've not heard anything. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's a kind of, it's another separation. It's a kind of like a, this barrier comes down between them, which can only be undone. It's only undone right at the end where she picks up the radio. Right. And it's so important. I think that it doesn't happen face to face. She becomes this yep. kind of spectral voice. Oh, ab- absolutely. Right. Is she, she's so like, like at the end, right? Like, of course, Edgar isn't seeing these ghosts because he's, he's at a different point in his healing. You know, he, for him, the ghost is now Nancy. She's the thing that's haunting his life, right? She's the thing that's becoming spectral and ephemeral and enrobed in misery and death, you know, and for, for her to reconnect at the end, it's, you're, you're so correct. I love that reading. I love that reading about her using the radio to reach out to him and, her line is, I'm ready to talk about Ava, their their deceased daughter. And like it's it is so important that she does this as a spectral entity because to, to him that's kind of what she's become. Yeah, and she says she says, I've been lost. I've been lost mm-hmm. for and it's like I find it super interesting where like we talk about, oh, you lost someone, right? You you've lost yep. some and often the answer is no, you didn't lose someone. Something was taken from you. Mm-hmm. And what we lose is ourselves. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And this is this is why, like you know, like Kent and and the mummering, like, the mummering. <laughs> oh, Yorkshire, Yorkshire brain popped up for a second there. Go back, <laughs> go back down into the pit where you came from. Um, but the murmuring, I think, is, is is such a beautiful exploration of this, and like it's just like. It's it's those Babadook feelings all over again. Like Kent is just so good at these kind of like meditative hauntings. Yeah, I was about to say, if you're watching a Jennifer Kent piece, you know that like the kid is dead. <laughs> yeah, that's like the, the big takeaway here. Um, yeah. Oh dear. Also, a quick note on the academic thing on this one, but this is this is when you can tell you have like pure academic, like a refined academic brain rot. Um, when you when you have seventies billionaire academic brain rot, um, so I'm watch, I'm watching uh, the murmuring right, and so our our couple ornithologists go to a secluded island to research birds alone for a while, and my first reaction is like, oh, isn't that like the ideal date? You know, being sent on an academic work day <laughs> with your crush, like. But then, like, to follow that up, I'm like, oh, my God, if I was, like, doing some trite ornithology project and I found out it was on the site of a historically haunted building, like, you could do such a cool study of the birds and that haunting as they they intersect together and, like, start to inform each other as, like, mutually extant pieces of the world. Uh, so, yeah, never become an academic. Otherwise, you'll start having thoughts like that. Once again, psychogeography has broken Ash's brain. <laughs> See, it's all—it's always—it's almost like we're always standing on land, and land exists as a thing that we remember. Like, ah, oh, table flip, and then the table turns into birds, but the birds are actually my desire, and then that turns into goo, and it turns me into a monster, and then I do seventies cocaine and fly away. Coming next season on <laughs> GDT, so, call us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, call us, call us. We'd be so good at this. Um, so yeah, yeah. Do you have any, do you have any parting thoughts about Guillermo del Toro's cabinet of curiosities? Uh, it's, it's really good. It's really good. It's, it is not great. And it it has all of the strengths and weaknesses of a kind of anthology. Um, but it's really, it's really cool to see this kind of self-aware 
self-reflexive horror storytelling gets so much attention. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I think my, my, my parting comments would be to, to look to the other entries, especially the autopsy, but even the ones that we didn't like, you know, like there, there's still a lot of conversation to be had in, in each one of these entries. And, you know, just, just, just because two, two wizened podcasters from high on our film theory thrones cast down a few of these entries doesn't mean there's not absolutely fantastic things to say about them and think using them as kind of their own hermeneutics. Absolutely. Let's, um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's wrap it there. I think. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for coming to yet another mini episode that becomes the length of a full length episode. This is uh, not something that happens to us all the time. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.